Welcome back to Son of a Preaching Man with Jonathan Martin, a podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In this episode, Jonathan reflects on Romans 13 and Paul's perspective on the government. With everything going on in the U.S. with immigration policy and shutting those out in the margins who are looking for a safe place, Jonathan shines light on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Welcome back to Son of a Preacher Man. I am coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee. Really just moved here um, a little over a week ago, just now starting to get settled in. Um, It's an exciting time. It's certainly also a challenging time, um, but in a good way, good challenges, but would certainly appreciate your prayers as I'm getting acclimated to a lot of new life here, uh, but but a lot of grace in this season too. So glad to be podcasting from Nashville officially. I don't want to take too much time warming up here though, because um, this is heavy on my heart. I do not want to be that person that swings at every pitch in terms of, you know, I don't think everything that happens in broader culture or in popular culture demands a response from somebody like me. Um, I'm not the Pope. I have no pretenses of any of that. Yet at the same time, I do think that there are some moments that are more serious than others. And, and part of the uniqueness of the, the moment we're in right now is that while everything is spiritual and everything that we say and do has spiritual implications, there are these particular moments where, uh, oddly enough, we still end up talking about the Bible. And we, we have these handful of cultural moments where, not in indirect, but in a direct way, people are actually talking about biblical text. And I feel like in the midst of such a moment, it's really important for the church to speak into this prophetically. Um, I, I'm, of course, referring to what just happened, and it is happening, because this is uh, certainly an ongoing story. So many of us have been watching with horror uh, th- this whole debacle around immigration, uh, how we are having uh, people coming into this country seeking asylum where parents are being separated from their children. Uh, what's come up uh, more recently in the last few days, more and more details about the kind of conditions that children are actually living in. Uh, in some cases, it seems to be actual cages. Um, it, th- there's a lot going on. And in the midst of this, we've had two prominent officials in the Trump administration refer to a particular text. I'm, of course, referring to, uh, to Jeff, Session, Jeff Sessions and Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, both of whom, uh, directly appealing to their fellow Christians, invoked Romans 13, where the Apostle Paul uh, famously or infamously uh, calls for Christians to submit to earthly authorities, to governing authorities, as a part and parcel of their Christian obedience. Um, There is a lot that I can say about that, a lot that I want to say about that. But before I wade in specifically into Romans 13, let me just get this off my chest first. Don't mean to speak with any hyperbole, but I am so ready to, to take back the Apostle Paul I get so tired of Paul in particular, more so than any other figure in Scripture, really, being perverted and misunderstood. This is something, by the way, that happens both 
on con, in, in terms of conservative culture, to be sure, but also in progressive culture, where Paul is thought of as being this sort of institutional relic who's all about the, the status quo and maintaining traditions. Folks, hear me here. You do not have a more radical thinker than Paul in the ancient world uh, when he writes that in Christ that there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Nobody, nobody, nobody is talking like that. Paul is brilliant. Paul is bold. Paul genuinely glimpses something of uh, the kingdom future that can and must be and, and articulates that in, in so many radical ways. He himself is a radical and a rebel. The apostle Paul is an enemy of the state who will be executed by the state. And he really is kind of the figurehead uh, for the for the way in which the early church subverts the Roman government, not in indirect ways, not in implicit ways, but explicitly. I mean, the very phrase that is the core mantra for Paul that he goes to over and over again, that Jesus is Lord, is a way of trolling the Roman government. Because, of course, the proclamation that everybody is hearing in that culture in their time is that Caesar is Lord. Paul knows what he's doing to call Jesus is Lord. He understands that to call Jesus Lord is a political claim because he's not claiming that Jesus is this abstract deity who has jurisdiction over people's souls when they die. He's not talking about spirit land somewhere. To call Jesus Lord is to say that Jesus is Lord over the world. It has implications for real life. So for example, the same word that Paul uses in Romans 13 in Greek, when he talks about these rulers and authorities, he will use that exact expression in Colossians to say that Christ himself is ahead of and rules over these governments and earthly rulers, that Christ is above them. Um, when he says that we only have one Lord, Jesus Christ, he this is in a context where the, the proclamation of the Roman Empire is we have one Lord, and that is Caesar. He knows what he's doing. He knows that this is a risky message. He's not intimidated by the government. He's not intimidated by Nero. The Apostle Paul is a radical and revolutionary figure. And what happens is when people start, because man, you can you can use a scripture to justify anything in the world that you want to. You can find a Bible verse. You can stack some Bible verses to support almost anything in the world that you want. It's why it's so important that we read in context and that we establish a larger framework for who Paul is and what Paul is doing. Paul is praying for and is anticipating the day when God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Paul, um, not indirectly, again, in places like Colossians, uh, gestures directly toward this idea that ultimately the reign and rule of God is going to supplant the rule of the Roman government, that it's actually going to be replaced, that, that Jesus is again going to be uh, openly ruling and reigning over the world. That's what these early Christians are anticipating. So you, you just you just have to keep in mind who Paul is and what he's doing. Now that being said, for obvious reasons, then, Romans 13, 1 through 7, um, has kind of always been a challenging text. Some would say a problematic text, because it is unlike anything else that we read in Paul. 
Nowhere else does Paul use this kind of language. Nowhere really does he express this kind of sentiment, uh, which is why there are prominent Pauline scholars over the years who have believed uh, that Romans 13, 1 through 7 is a later insertion, that after the early Christians begin to lose something of that early apocalyptic fervor and expectation uh, that Jesus could return at any moment, uh, that as they begin to accommodate a bit and then later will come into a certain measure of power, that this is something that actually gets inserted uh, later. There are even uh, Paul scholars who would uh, contend that this is not only a thought or an idea that would be alien to Paul, this idea of you know, submitting to governing authorities under you know any and all circumstances, but that it's uh, really alien to any early Christians, and that this is something that kind of comes from uh, the, the Stoic culture, really, that gets imported and kind of tacked on to the gospel message. So that's why there have always been some people, uh, like J.C. O'Neill would be one, uh, who have contended that this text is, is perhaps not Pauline in origin. O'Neill actually has a, a really great uh, quote about this I like. These seven verses have caused more unhappiness and misery in the Christian East and West than any other seven verses in the New Testament. That's quite a claim. Has caused more unhappiness and misery than any other seven verses in the New Testament. And, you know, I, I can understand why he says this. I can understand why some people uh, would question the Pauline origin of this text. I'm not going to go so far as to throw out Romans 13, 1 through 7, uh, say that somehow it's not inspired or does it belong in in the larger flow of the book of Romans, though I will admit uh, it, it is an odd turn in some ways and kind of especially what's happening through Romans 12 through 14. It, I can understand why some would feel like it's an insertion. What I would rather uh, do, though, is, is, is not to remove it, but to contextualize it and to put it in perspective in terms of what's happening in the particular moment that Paul's in and some of the particular challenges that he's facing. Now, you have to keep in mind, uh, Romans is written very early. Uh, this is written to a very early Christian community. In fact, there are some people who, who believe that this little Roman church wasn't even officially gathered yet, that there were more kind of like these individual bands, a couple of little house churches, if you will, that just were starting to come together. At, uh, at any rate, it is very much a new uh, green work. And the Apostle Paul, who is a good pastor, uh, cares about these sons and daughters of the kingdom. He's looking out for them. Um, it probably is also worth noting that because Romans is written uh, rather early, this is before the Roman Emperor Nero really goes off the rails and starts doing some of the most crazy demonstrative things to Christians. So it's also during a time of kind of relative peace and stability before things get a lot worse. But it, it's written in a context where what's still happening in these early Christian communities, because so many of them, of course, were were, um, were were Jews who had come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, uh, that he is the fulfillment of that Abrahamic promise. And so, uh, as it was with any of these Jews in the first century, there is a lot of debate and dispute about what to do with Rome. Uh, those of you who are familiar with the Gospels know, and you can feel this around the corner in every text, just how many Jewish people in Jesus' day were looking for, were anticipating a militaristic Messiah who was going to overthrow, was going to engineer some kind of a revolt against the Roman government, in which finally 
Israel's place would be restored in the world and they would be uh, she would be vindicated over and against her enemies. You had people who were looking for that, who were anticipating that. And in Jesus' time, and again, also in Paul's, you're, you constantly have these little mini revolts that are taking place where people are attempting to take up arms against their oppressors. It is not just Paul who's against this. Um, I, I would put that again in the context of what we saw at the end of Romans 12. D we're not to be overcome by evil, but we're supposed to overcome evil with good. That's how we do it. Uh, Jesus doesn't want his disciples taking up arms. There's a reason why it's right before the crucifixion. I think that's, that's so important strategically that just before Jesus is crucified, he tells Peter, put away your sword. Remember that when they come to get Jesus in the garden and they, they're coming after him with swords, clubs, spears, Jesus, and when, when and Peter whips out that sword and starts swinging it, Peter, put down your sword uh, through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The day of the sword is over. The day of, uh, no, in fact, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of peace. And in Stanley Hauerwas's phrase, it is a peaceable kingdom. We don't play by the rules of the world. We don't fight fire with fire. We don't use the weapons of the world to, to, to fight against the evil that's in the world. Rather, in the also the words of the Apostle Paul in another place, uh, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, right? Or to quote Paul from Ephesians, from Ephesians, rather, if we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the high places. This is not the kind of war that can be won with human weapons. The often, uh, mostly misunderstood book of Revelation is astonishingly clear about this if you know what you're reading kind of through these apocalyptic symbols. The idea is that the way that God overcomes ultimately against the forces of sin, death, hell, and the grave is that, you know, it's not that Jesus has a bigger sword or bigger weapon, but rather it is through the sacrifice of the lamb. God conquers over the forces of evil through God's own sacrifice on the cross through Christ Jesus. And it is that kind of radical, self-sacrificial love that will overcome in the end. It won't be fighting evil with evil. The way that love will overcome, end, will overcome evil in the end is through self-sacrifice. This is the consistent message of the New Testament. But to this particular text, so Paul, after writing in chapter 12, ends by telling us, do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul in Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, 
busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. Now, what's going on here? I think if you fit this in the larger flow of who Paul is and what he's doing, it's very simple. Paul does not want these young, tender, early Christians, some of whom are very zealous about their faith and some of whom are are, are still zealous about um, this this whole idea of kind of there being a, a messianic kind of sense of prophecy that God is going to overthrow the government. He, he doesn't want them to engage in this kind of conflict. He doesn't want them to fight fire with fire. He's looking out for their very lives. So Paul, in this particular moment, not as some sort of a universal command to all people in all times and places. I mean, just play that out in your head for a second. Imagine the, the idea that there be, uh, that, that Scripture, uh, that the thrust of Scripture in general would be to tell people, no matter who you are or where you live, the authorities in your time are always right, and you should always do what they tell you to do. I mean, that's just heinous. How, what a terrible world we live in. I mean, for all the atrocities we're dealing with now, if, if everybody had this idea throughout the centuries, Christians always believed that you just do what you're told. Slavery would have never been abolished in this country. That's asinine. Of course, that's not what Paul is saying, is to obey the government at all costs. I would even contend that there's a caveat to this within the very text of Romans 13, because we go from that to verse 8, where Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul, like Jesus, believes that the ultimate law, the higher law, is the law of love. Love is the summation of the law and the prophets, to love God with everything that we have and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That is the summation of the law and the prophets. It's the culmination of the law and the prophets. And it is, and it, and it transcends any and all other rules or restrictions. Love is the ultimate law. So we submit insofar that we live peaceably under governing authority so long as we're able to do that in a way that does not bring violence to our neighbors. Uh, the, the, the rule of government only extends, uh, yes, there are certain ways in which, you know, in other places, Paul will talk about living peaceably with all people as much as possible. We do want to try to live at peace whenever we can. But that does not extend to places where the role of government or the rule of government uh, it, it causes direct violence to a neighbor. That The law of love transcends the earthly rulers and authorities. All Paul is trying to do here is to, in a community where he knows he's got some folks who are zealous and who are still riled up and looking for some kind of a war, is to say, settle down, mind your own business, do the best you can, keep your head down, and let's continue to, to do this gospel work and bring this gospel revolution through it in a subversive way. Paul is constantly subverting the Roman Empire intentionally and strategically, but he does try to be wise about it where he can. Now, ultimately, again, we're talking about someone who is going to be martyred 
who's going to be killed by the Roman government. So even that, you know, needs some some degree of, of qualification. But, you know, as far as you can, live peaceably where you can, respect the leaders as much as you can, so long as ultimately you are submitting and surrendering to the law of love. That's the whole point here. It is certainly not the Apostle Paul telling people whatever the government tells you to do is good and right, and you should do that as some kind of a universal law in all places, in all times. Everybody just needs to obey their rulers. That's foolishness. It's utter foolishness. But, you know, to kind of bring this full circle, and I'm not going to take too much time with this. You know, I wanted to keep this reflection fairly simple. But you guys... um, I don't want to speak with hyperbole. I don't want to be grandiose here. But I think this moment matters so much. What we've seen brewing, I know in many ways so much of what we're dealing with right now is not new at all. These are things that are very ancient. These are principalities and powers that are being exposed. And not only are principalities and powers being exposed, we ourselves are being exposed. Um, We're having to look in the mirror and contend with some harsh truths about ourselves. But um, I I just watch here, you know, the gospel really is political. And, uh, you know, I don't even know who said this first. A lot of us reflect on this idea that the gospel is not partisan, but it is political. It does have political implications. And part of what I think is uniquely challenging about this, about this time, while the gospel has always been political, I just keep seeing these ways in which these principalities and powers kind of keep coming further and further into our lane as the church and as church people and as church leaders. Um, I know I've got a lot of people out there and I've, I've heard from plenty of them who said, have said like, man, you've changed. We liked it better when you weren't so political, when you just talked about Jesus folks, I've been talking about the same things in my adult ministry for 20 years. My essential convictions about God and gospel, Jesus and justice have not moved. Uh, So let me say this gently and lovingly. Some of y'all are the ones who've, who've moved, you know, the, the goal, the, the, you know, part of what's so striking about the moment that we're in is that um, these, these claims that government leaders are making about other people, which I do believe are underwritten again by these principalities and powers that, that demonize whole people groups, that villainize them, that causes us to look at our neighbor with suspicion, that causes us to treat them as some kind of an other. It is just simply not the way of the kingdom. And I, I hate saying it like this. It feels too stark. Um, I think some of y'all really think that I get off on saying some of these things in a strong way, but I promise you, it grieves me. It breaks my heart. I, I wish I didn't read this moment in the way that I do. But folks, the reality is this nationalism, that continues to uh, encroach on the people of God and continues to encroach on churches it is, is nothing less than a rival religion. It is idolatrous because it makes comp- competing claims with our claim that Jesus is Lord. It relegates Jesus to the uh, landscape of souls and does it give us space to really believe that Jesus is Lord over the world to welcome God's kingdom in the earth? No, I'm not saying that I want to Christianize the government or that it's the government's job to bring God's shalom to the earth. But I do believe that when we see egregious kind of injustice happening right in front of us, that it is the job of the church to speak prophetically. And I know I've got folks listening who are pastors and church leaders. To go back to something I said earlier in the podcast, 
I know you can't swing at every pitch, but y'all please keep this in mind. Part of the reason that we're in this mess is not, it's, it's everything's happening right now in my mind is not a direct descendant of the old Christian right or moral majority. There's been some of that, but really I think a lot of what happened is that we've gone through this phase where in the name of Christian unity and in the name of having big churches that can reach a lot of people, uh, and there's a, a role and a place for that. But there's been this idea that we just don't want to talk about anything that could be offensive or polarizing to anybody ever because it will distract people from the message of Jesus. What that's turned into is a way of saying that what you believe about Jesus as Lord has no implications for real life. And the fact that we have been so absent and so silent from those kind of public spaces and have not spoken faithfully and prophetically in the public sphere I really believe that it's in that vacuum that, that, that there, there was an absence, there was a vacuum that was created that now these other voices are starting to feel precisely because we have been willing to speak to these things. I think it's a moment for us to speak with tenderness, with compassion, but to speak prophetically and to speak God's truth and, and to speak God's truth to, uh, to the culture to, of course, as always, to start first and foremost by figuring out how we can better welcome refugees and aliens in our own community, uh, what that looks like within our own communities of faith. But folks, we, we have to speak prophetically and we have to live prophetically. This time is too urgent. Um, there really is nothing. It, it, is, it is nothing less than idolatry, what's happening right now. And I, goodness, as much as I don't want this to slip into a, you know, another kind of us versus them rhetoric um just so many things that we're that we're hearing right now we're seeing we know this is not the way of jesus and i understand that especially in a role right now of leading a community that the the time is uniquely polarizing and it's complicated and we're all seeking the holy spirit for wisdom and i will pray for you for wisdom pray for me too to speak with with wisdom to speak boldly and prophetically but also be wise of course we want to be wise and of course we want to be discerning all of that matters, but we also have to be clear. You know, this is such a defining moment, I believe, for our culture. The public witness of the church is at stake in a time like this. And I just think it's so important right now for there to be a real consensus among the people of God, among leaders, uh, to, to begin to speak into some of these things prophetically. I understand that that's risky. I understand that livelihoods are often at stake, not just for senior leaders, but for but for people who serve alongside them. I understand um, that that the implications are are weighty, but I think um, the the weightier thing, the weightiest thing here, right now, really is the public witness of the church. And if there has ever been a moment where sons and daughters need to prophesy in the power of the Holy Spirit to speak truth to power, to speak truth to these principalities and powers. We believe that God loves these principalities and powers and can transform them, but we have to speak truthfully for them. This is a moment to speak truth. So my prayer for you is for courage, for boldness, for strength, for clarity, not only to speak prophetically, but to live prophetically in this very important moment. Thanks for bearing with me. I didn't want to just rant, but I just felt like I needed to clarify a, a little bit of this conversation around Romans 13. So I hope this has been helpful. And I, my, my sincere prayer for you this week, even as you re-engage some of these texts, is that you will be in, in, invigorated and in some cases reinvigorated by the wind of the Spirit in these texts, that you will hear them with this radical edge that has been there 
from the very beginning. It's in the text, y'all. We're not making this stuff up. It's all right there. Let's be a kingdom church. Let's be a kingdom people. My prayers for you this week as we all learn to resist faithfully. God bless you guys. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Like an LP, each episode is divided into side A and side B. Side A could be a sermon, a conversation with a guest, but will always introduce some idea. Side B will always be a creative exploration of that idea through music, question answering with listeners, or quirky rabbit trails off of side A for people who want the deep cuts, not just the singles. No matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will be a resource in helping you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. For more, go to jonathanmartinwords.com and sign up for our email list. Have a good day.